Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. You know, and I, I like folks to, uh, to listen to the episodes and try to put the pieces together, because sometimes it seems a little random, you know, like science fiction over here, psychedelics over there, uh, technology criticism here, politics over there. How does it all fit together? I believe it does fit together. And for those of you who are uh, puzzling through uh, the now rather large archive of Expanding Mind, which is, of course, available on prn.org, as well as my own technosis.com, uh, for those of you sort of weaving and stitching it all together, we'll, we'll remember that there was an interview uh, not too terribly long ago with a, a fellow named C.J. James, who's a Canadian designer. We talked about snowboarding and festival culture and uh, design principles. And in that conversation, um, I mentioned uh, uh, CJ's partner in crime, Delvin Solkinson, who I've been wanting to speak to for a very long time, but because he is an incredibly modest person in a way that is terribly charming um, and very authentic, uh, he was like, I don't really have anything to say. I don't really want to do the podcast thing. I don't know. Even though he's like full top-level permaculture visionary designer, putting out tons of awesome media, traveling the world, talking to uh, permaculture elders, crystallizing concepts, putting out card decks, design principles, uh, workbooks, and tons of uh, uh, events, schooling, da-da-da. We have more to say about that. But because, nonetheless, he did not want to speak with me on expanding mind, but luckily the uh, the the walls caved in recently, uh, so now we get to kind of weave in the uh, the the CJ James conversation uh, to talk to his his old pal and partner uh, in crime. Um, as with CJ, I first met Delvin uh, at the what to my mind was kind of the the high holy days of festival culture in the, in the 2000s, early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, when uh, the neo-tribal thing was really kicking in and it didn't get quite so uh, recirculated yet. And going up to BC and meeting these characters, really immersing myself in, in really one of the more creative, self-consciously creatively designed subculture uh, experiences I've, I've ever had. And a lot of it had to do with CJ and Delvin uh, taking the kind of nebulous mysticism and indigenous inspiration and underground dance culture memes of that period of time and crystallizing them into maps and models that could then be sort of re-injected into the scene and, and bringing everything up into this kind of weird parallel world that almost felt like a, a kind of another dimension, a sort of elven techno dimension that was manifested in their language and in their design products. CJ was doing, you know, a lot of uh, the most of the graphic design, but Delvin was kind of the the mind mapper, the master uh, creator of, of crafting zones that he, then he would kind of disappear from and let other people take up their own meanings and kind of go go forward with the scene. 
And, uh, you know, it was an incredibly inspiring time hanging out with them and going to places like Boom. Uh, there was a big uh, BC contingent for a number of years at the Boom Festival where they helped set up their own kind of speaker spaces. And there was this period where there was a flowering of a lot of discussion at festivals about, you know, transformative potentials, uh, new ways of organizing society. Uh, and it really felt like the, and you know, to some degree still does feel like the festival culture is a place to incubate ideas that can go beyond subculture, go beyond hedonism, and really start to impact the world. And one of those main meme spaces or, or cultural principles or educational currents was permaculture. And permaculture became something you'd see at a, at a lot of these workshops, speaker spaces, at festivals. And I remember very clearly at a certain point going, you know, on the one hand, I'm so happy to see all this stuff. I'm so excited to see people coming to these workshops and absorbing information. And I know that some of them are getting activated. But at the same time, I could see the way that the festival scene itself tended to kind of isolate people from really moving out in the world or really pursuing these things kind of outside the fun zone, if you will, of the festival scene. Um, and so I had a, I, after a while, I started to be kind of ambivalent about the, the role or purpose of bringing this stuff in. Was it just window dressing? Were people really uh, getting transformed? Or were they really learning skills that then they were going to begin to move forward? And Delvin is a great example of someone who did, who was not only bringing data and information and and creative culture crafting to the festival scene, but was already interested in permaculture and then just ran with it. And, and really, has that's been the main thing that he's been doing for the last uh, 10 years. And uh, where he's wound up, though, is still kind of connected with the, uh, the visionary culture because he's a big character at, at COSM, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, the site that uh, Alex Gray and Allison Gray uh, are heading up there in upstate uh, New York. And so uh, Delvin is the senior managing editor of the Cosm Journal of Visionary Culture. He's on the board of directors. And probably most importantly, or the stuff that I really want to talk about is uh, he's also heading up their visionary uh, permaculture design program. So really taking that kind of kind of vague but sweet sentimental attraction towards permaculture from you know the festival perspective of like hey this is another way to organize the world it seems to resonate with these visionary ideas and really taking it to the next level he's put out a lot of tremendous material on on permaculture and he's studied with everybody uh bill mollison larry santoyo like tons of characters uh he's he's an he's an activator so uh, he's a he's a ferment a fermenting bacterium of Elvin excellence. So, Delvin, thanks for uh, joining me on Expanding Mind. Thanks, Eric. This is a really uh, momentous time for me since you were such a formative influence uh, back in the early days where we were generating this these memes around visionary culture and future culture and certainly permaculture. So thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I'm just so happy to have seen what you've done that you – that you know, you didn't stay inside the kind of weird underground or subcultural uh, sort of, you know, in a, in a weird way, it's kind of a fantasy world of the, of the festival scene. Uh, and you took some of its potential and, and sort of ran with it. What, you know, and, and one of the things I've always really liked about you and the way you approach things is you're very upfront about your influences. You know, you were one of the first people 
probably a little bit to my chagrin to call me an elder. And I was like, man, elder, I'm only like, I'm barely 40. Like, oh God. But you did it in such an awesome way that made me realize that there, uh, that you, it made me pay more attention to the need to be conscious about what knowledge I hold, what knowledge I am transmitting, what knowledge has been transmitted to me, and being clear about that and being um, true to those kinds of transmissions in a way that I think postmodern culture tends to undermine. You've always been very clear about your influences and, and very clear about honoring the teachers. And that comes through in your permaculture materials, which are a great introduction to permaculture, uh, but also, and part of the reason they are is because you clearly like absorb so much from so many amazing figures uh, that you can really synthesize and map in a way uh, that brings people, you know, into the conversation. So I, I, I guess I'd like to start out talking a little bit about your journey as you got deeper into the practice, philosophy, of permaculture, both in terms of your own working with the land and working with gardens, but but also beginning to travel the world and, and meet these these incredible characters, you know. Well, you were certainly a big part of the journey. I mean, Technosis was a real landmark and a touchstone. Uh, I met C.J. James and uh, Nasco Ripple at Simon Fraser University, and we were all doing cultural studies, and we were in the festival scene. We had a collective called the tribal harmonics collective that did micro festivals and events and i was paying my way through school by gardening and uh, as we started to travel and get involved uh i think we met you even maybe in san francisco we were also in the sort of psychedelic uh, conference circuit that john hannah was putting together and others and we were really exploring the implications and applications uh, of this new ways of thinking about the world and when I moved up to the Elphinstone Rainforest from Vancouver, I stumbled a, upon Phytumphalos Farms. Phytumphalos means the umbilical cord of the planet. And uh, this man there, Lance Wildwood, said, permaculture design, have you ever heard of that? Let's do a course together. And we were on this working farm, and I was with C.J. James as well, and we started studying permaculture design. From the perspective of uh, the festival culture, really, and we were both brilliantly brought in and felt totally at home with the concepts of an ethical design science and thinking about what does it really look like to both be scientists and also care about the things that we're studying. But we we're also amazed that this uh, movement that called itself a design movement um, had really uh, poorly designed media, really looked like it was a bunch of like backwoods farmers <laughs> kind of teaching people about how to garden and farm, uh, which in some ways it was, but of course the implications of what they were teaching was far beyond the garden and the farm. So when I finished that first online permaculture design course that was really happening in person at this farm, I came across this woman, Marilyn Magus, at the uh, community services in the local town and one thing led to another, and the federal government of Canada gave uh, me and Ainsley Crone, uh, my partner and, and guide at the time, uh, a large grant to start a youth program, and essentially take uh, youth at risk and go into the school system and bring permaculture design into the uh, elementary school system in our bioregion. So we built community gardens and set up recycling stations and kind of created legacy projects like green clubs that would be 
carried on and stewarded by by uh, staff as they came and went. And we were also in the festival scene and we were exploring future culture and the implications of technology. Our group was called Crystal and Spore and CJ was kind of the crystal and you can refer to his podcast because he kind of really came from the tech perspective and I was kind of the spore because I was more earthy and building gardens and talking about growing food and medicine. And so we really took that into the festival culture and um, that's one of the places we worked with you, including meeting you out on the playa in, in central Portugal at Boom Festival. And we realized that, you know, we were bringing permaculture and ideas of permanence and stability to this culture that was completely impermanent and not stable and like a throwaway, you know, what NASCO called the temporary autonomous zone um, from that uh, famous book. So it was an interesting paradox to be like, how can we come into, it's like, how can we come into a place uh, that is so temporary and how can we teach about permanence in that context? So that was really interesting, but people are hungry for it. And yeah. a lot of the festival culture people are really seeking to, you know, live within their values and, and be a more caring culture. So Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think it might be good just for, you know, some of the folks who aren't as familiar with the permaculture or have heard the, ter the term, um, I know it's a, you know, it's a huge field, but there, but if you could talk about it a little bit in terms of particularly the implications it has for culture at large or for human life at large, like the, it, the permaculture has always struck me as almost more than any other design science that I know is that even when people are talking about really concrete things, the maintenance of the soil, you know, how you use worms, how seasons ch change in the land, how if you're going to work land, it's good to spend a lot of time not doing anything on it before you start to make moves and getting to learn how it works. That, that even when people are being very concrete with their description, their practices, there's always an overtone. There's always like an allegory or a, a larger principle that you, you feel can apply to life as a whole, to technology, to urban experience, to interpersonal relationships, to consciousness, to the you know, theories of knowledge. Um, and that's always been really, you know, it's, it's always struck me as being very particular to the permaculture uh, vibe. So when you were bringing some, some of these concrete principles, and I, you know, welcome, invite you to, to describe some of the ones that are most important to you, um, it seems like you in particular, because of your concern with design, your, your meta consciousness, you're a very meta person. So even as you were really concrete with the gardening, you had that meta perspective that really was taking permaculture as a larger map. Um, so how did you kind of work out that relationship or how did you see yourself moving forward with the practical, even as your, 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 the bigger view, the meta mind was also opening up? Interesting question. Well, permaculture, one of the principles is moving from patterns to details. And uh, one of my mentors, Larry Santoyo, said, never trivialize permaculture by giving really short answers. So um, maybe I can kind of give a two-part answer to that question. And that also clarifies a little bit about what is permaculture design. Um, one of the central concepts, you know, which I sometimes call the principle of the miraculous, life creates life is that um, you know, the reason that we're able to be here today is because nature is designed really well. And certainly if we both left the spots and if the listeners left the spots where they are right now for a thousand years, 
you know, things would get better and better and better. You'd have a ancient rainforest before long with increasing diversity of plants and animals and insects. And that natural ecosystem would clean the air, it would clean the water, it would build the soil, it would address the ecological problems that we're facing, restabilize the climate. And the reason why, you know, nature is so successful and the reason why we're here today talking is because nature's designed really well. And I think indigenous people from all the beginning of time, from the beginning of consciousness, and modern scientists as well, really look to nature uh, through direct observation and realize, wow, nature is an operating system. I call it OS Gaia 2019 because it's changing and evolving each year. And like all operating systems, it can be reduced to a set of principles. And these principles are drivers, uh, design drivers for what's happening. So part of the concept with permaculture design is that we can take these principles that are the secrets of nature's success and apply them to our own decision-making processes and our own designs. And uh, the idea is in the same way they do that for nature, maybe they can really help us to you know, save time, energy, and money, live in alignment with our values, and essentially make better decisions that create more permanent uh, cities, farms, gardens, more permanent places and habitats for humans and, and everything else to live. But Toby Hemingway is one of the teachers that was really influential on me. I studied with him uh, in Portland and in Vancouver. And he had a primer that I thought really explained permaculture well in, in a more detailed way. He kind of looked at resources and energy on the planet and divided it into three things. He said there's degenerative resources. These are resources that when you use them, they're used up. And when you use them, the world around is polluted and degraded. So degenerative resources would be things like oil and natural gas, um, nuclear energy. So the starting point for permaculture, the larger pattern is like, we cannot have a civilization dependent upon energy and resources that destroy the planetary ecosystem and ourselves and are totally used up, even though they're in limited supply. And of course, when we look around and when Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, the originators of permaculture, looked around in the 70s, they realized, uh-oh, this is exactly what we have. So... Level one is like what we have now, we can't, is not going to work. That's not sustainable. That's the beginning of the sustainability movement. So the second type of resources and energy that Toby delineated is what we call sustainable resources. These are resources that are unaffected by use. So it might be things like um, trees, water, you know, hydroelectric energy, um, solar energy, wind energy. But uh, this whole look at how humans use sustainable resources and energy is sort of goes up against the central myth of humanity, you know, the, the certainly the reason that Apple computers are so successful. And it's the myth that we as humans are technologically advanced. And I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Certainly we're more, you know, we will be seen in the future like we see cavemen now because 
our ability to use these sustainable resources are totally unsustainable. You know, the solar panels, I mean, within five years, we throw them in the landfill because the new solar panels are 50 times more, you know, efficient. Of course, they're made with rare earth metals, you know, mined by people in the developing world and sold to us for pennies on the dollar. You know, the windmills are destroying migratory patterns, the hydroelectric dams are, you know, destroying the natural patterns of fish and, and messing up the water systems. So we don't actually have the sophistication to use sustainable energies in a sustainable way. Now, the third type of resources and energy that Toby delineated, which is really of interest to permaculture, is regenerative energy and resources. These are things that when we use them, the world around actually gets better, gets healthier. And interestingly, with the regenerative resources is that when we don't use them, we lose our ability to use them. So we actually have to use them in order for them uh, to have that regenerative effect. So, you know, one might think in the human world of our brains, you know, don't think enough, brain turns to mush or, you know, the couch potato where if you don't use your muscles, they atrophy. But of course, if you work out, your muscles get stronger and then you have more ability to get stronger. If you use your brain, like listening to this podcast, you know, the more you use your brain, the more capacity you have uh, for evolutionary thought and evolution of consciousness. But in a really simple way, we look around and say, well, nature is a regenerative system. Leave it alone and it regenerates the world around it. And the reason for this is because nature, unlike human technological civilization is actually super advanced. It has the ability to use the energy of the sun, the wind, the water, the natural elements on the planet in a way that not only doesn't destroy everything, doesn't use up those resources, but actually has zero ecological footprint. So it has the way to use sustainable resources, not only in a sustainable, but in a regenerative way. So the bottom line of permaculture initially is like, wow, we need to do that. We need to mimic nature. We need to be able to use the energies and resources of our planetary ecosystem in a way that actually makes everything healthier and more abundant. Well, what I love about the way you, you frame it, and I know that, the, that partly what you were presenting were, were general permaculture ideas, but very much filtered through you know, your crystal and spore lens. And, and one of those has to do with really like breaking down the metaphor and saying, no, 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 nature is designed, it is like a technology, it is acting as a technology. And by the way, kids, it's way more sophisticated than all the stuff you have. And what I like about it is when you put it that way, it's simultaneously totally obvious, like no duh. I mean, that's what, if you read evolutionary work, they describe these things as if they were machines, as if they were designed. And then if you ask them, they'll say, well, no, it wasn't actually designed. But it's basically saying that the conditions of evolution itself give rise to design, design principles, design solutions, sophisticated novelties, explorations, more efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So the, they're already speaking that language. And yet, so on the one hand, it's totally obvious. And on the other hand, even me, who's I'm, I'm open to this stuff. Like I'm, I'm into it. And there's still a little bit like, whoa, that's a little far, man. Like our technology is pretty sophisticated. Like there's this human investment in human superiority that is so intransigent and it's so widespread. It's like, it's like the resistance that people have to acknowledging that plants are intelligent. I mean, 
It's totally obvious that anything you want to say, intelligence is this, it's that, it's signaling, it's planning, it's making decisions, it's having a memory, it's helping out others, all of those things, totally clear the plant world does it. No argument about it. And yet, even again, even people who are kind of already signed up generally with this kind of worldview are like, well, I did plan intelligent, I don't know. I mean, they're cool, but, you know, so... By by framing it in this kind of futuristic way, where it's like we're already on the spaceship, the spaceship is already like super evolved, let's get into it. You, you kind of break down what I think is one of the things that um, has helped, but also hindered not just permaculture, but in, environmentalism in general, which is this sort of ingrained, like this ha- hatred of technology of the modern world so much that you just kind of romanticize and want to go back and want to, and that the reasons for that are very understandable, but by saying, no, 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 that's just not the right framework. Uh, it really f- like makes it pop in a way. And, and I, I mean, I can only imagine that when you frame things that way, you see the lights open up in people's eyes when you're, when you're doing your workshops and, and presenting your materials. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, let me throw in a principle or two, just because we talked about design principles to bring it down to the details now that we've hit the patterns. Sure. Um, You mentioned Bill Mollison and uh, Larry Santoyo, which are two of my favorite and most beloved teachers. So maybe I'll I'll take a page uh, from them. Uh, One of the design principles that uh, Larry Santoyo has taught me about, he calls create conditions. And idea as designers that it's really it's kind of a Taoist idea really is that we're you know we're trying to create the conditions for things to happen so again with this human-centric concept we think oh we grow plants it's like we don't grow plants we're not gods plants grow themselves but certainly we can create the conditions for plants to grow more successfully and in permaculture design, we're really looking at like, what are the conditions for a successful business? What are the conditions for a loving relationship? And by studying the conditions that exist for successful relationships or businesses, then we can apply those to the new ones that we're creating. And we can really help to create the conditions for success. So in permaculture, we're really thinking a lot about working in collaboration with nature and in collaboration with the living processes that we're working with. It's not like we're forcing anything to happen. We're not in control, but there's a collaboration that we can have. And that's a unique piece that we as humans uh, have the ability to do because of the way our consciousness works, is that we can glean from observations these design principles and we can use them uh, to inform the environments that we're creating. Bill Mollison, who I did extensive study with, that was the my mentor for my first diploma and my master's in Tasmania. One of his original design principles is uh, problems are solutions. And I think this really speaks to the creativity in the permaculture paradigm, or post-paradigm as I like to call it. Oftentimes, the way that we approach problem solving in normal design science is here's a problem, what's the solution for this problem? And we run around trying to think of, you know, well, what's the solution for this? How can we, how can we find that out? And in permaculture design, we kind of go completely outside that box and say, well, that problem is definitely a solution for something else. Instead of thinking, what's the solution for the problem? We think, what is this problem a solution for? 
And often that kind of out of the box thinking leads to these really low impact, amazing solutions that totally come from uh, outside and are a little bit more effortless, where it's like, oh, we got too much of this. Oh, wait a minute. What wants that? Oh, if we connect what wants our waste stream, then they benefit and then we can benefit because they'll come in and take the waste stream away and use it in a productive way. And that's how nature works, really. There is no waste generated because the waste of one thing is the food and resource and energy for another. So there's a couple examples of permaculture design principles and how we can use them in our own decisions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That that whole idea of uh, cultivating the ground, I think, is really an interesting one because you know, I know you're, you've been very influenced by, by Taoism. It was something we connected on, whether it's, you know, Chuangzi or the, or Zen poets and, and just the kind of, uh, the, the sort of respect for natural processes, the respect for like a sort of chaotic, but generative force that's larger than the human. It's something I've always been attracted to, but there's this kind of problem, which is that, is that, yeah, okay, but we are still agents, you know, we're, that's what part of what we do is that we, we do do things. It's just maybe we don't do them the way we think we do them. And so I think part of the challenge is to not get the human completely out of the way and just go, no, the human is just an effect of larger forces. You can't do anything. You can't, you have no agency, just give up and, and submit. Uh, but at the same time, you can't go, yes, but we are the crystal willful agents of history. You know, this that old story is clearly really stinky at this point. So what is our agency? And the agent of the creating conditions, the, the agency of creating conditions, which is kind of like the agency of the gardener, where you do have some control and decisions to make about soil, but you're not making the plant grow. And... I've even noticed that in my own life uh, recently is like there's certain areas in my life that are blocked or and the closer I focus into the actual problem or conflict or whatever, the more and more impossible it seems. It's like you get super heady. It's like, oh, my God, it's like, no, if I do that, then it's like that. If I do that, it's like that. Oh, my God, stuck. No way out. And that's the stuckness. But you like move back a couple of scales and you go, where is this taking place? Oh, it's in this larger framework. Well, what can I do to like take care of that? And it might just be like, like you say, like, oh, I'll just exercise more. Or, you know, uh, I'll just be, when I'm feeling good about the situation, I'll just be really sweet. You know, it doesn't, I, you know, that's not going to solve the problem, right? But it's just going to be, but then you find that sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly that that creates a ground for real change, but you're not pushing the particular change. And, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it seems really in alignment with the way that these permaculture principles can apply very specifically to very concrete situations, detailed situations, but again, are always teaching on these, these meta levels as well. And I think that's partly what people who are interested in visionary culture respond to. It's not just that it's concrete and earthy and based on sort of indigenous intuitions and feelings for the, the holism of nature or the great pattern of nature. Uh, that can be cool, but can also, that can get a little stuck. There's, it's also that it's, it's, it's permeable. It works with overtones and works on different levels and like kind of like a visionary experience. Oh yeah, it's like a concrete thing that I'm seeing, but then I see its archetype and I see the way it fits into the cosmic pattern. And now it's, 
talking to me like it's alive, like, oh my God, but, you know, but there's something in permaculture itself that has that, that visionary quality and you call it, you know, visionary permaculture design um, and you do it at Cosm where all, a lot of kids are coming for different reasons, maybe not to study permaculture because they like visionary art, they, they want to be part of a, of, a, of a proactive, you know, cultural movement. So when you're doing that kind of work, specifically at Cosm, how do you kind of weave these worlds together? How do you show how these concrete principles are also part of, you know, a quasi-indigenous or nature-based visionary view of the cosmos? That's great. Well, I love teaching out here at Cosm with my partner, Grace Solkinson. And the program, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about the program here, and that will the answer will come out through that description. It happens over a year. And in permaculture, observation is the first principle. So we spend a year, we travel through all the seasons, and we observe a number of different systems over that year, ourselves, uh, as well as the natural ecosystem around us. But everyone has a project that they focus on. For some, it might be a business or a practice. For others, it may be a garden or a landscape or a farm. And we spend the year traveling to different places to see permaculture systems in action. Uh, there's a saying in permaculture, which I got from Toby Hemingway, if a picture's worth a thousand words, then a model's worth a thousand pictures. So we really are going to see working models as a way to understand the concepts instead of just talking about them. So we're journeying and seeing these conscious businesses and these uh, e eco communities and eco villages and uh, the way that permaculture has been successful in, say, helping organizations have their governance. And this whole time, people are really thinking about their project that they thought of, their garden, their business, their relationship. And then at the end of the year, in this kind of postmodern way, all of the things we've read about and discussed and worked on and seen in action are kind of applied in a really personal, intimate way to people's own projects, and they have a final design project. And the idea is that they're really applying what they've learned. They're applying um, the principles of nature to help take their project to the next level and help them decide, save time, energy, and money you know, while living in closer alignment with their values. That's kind of the promise of permaculture. So we allow people and we need people to apply it in a practical way to anything that they're doing because permaculture is not meant to be something that is just discussed and thought about. It's meant to be a, a hands-on, applied, directly relevant system that is about the way that they design, that everybody designs their life, their relationship, their livelihood, and their landscapes. Yeah. It's a, when, I, when I hear you talk about this, you know, I also really hear someone who's both uh, gifted in and very conscious of, again, another meta level, which is the level of teaching itself. Like, it's not just that there here are these principles, I need to communicate them. There's different ways of communicating them. We could do X, we could do Y. But that there's a sense that part of what the permaculture lore is or the the kind of uh, uh, model is has to do with with teaching with how we teach each other and 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 one of the things you know if, if people go to the your website visionarypermaculture.com just to even if you're not into permaculture just to look at 
the design, the way in which you present material has a real freshness to it because it, it reminds me on the one hand of some of the creative educational strategies of the 70s, stuff that came out of not the hippy-dippy side of things, but the kind of like eco-maker, hacker, whole earth review, uh, Bucky Fuller, that kind of design world. It reminds me of that, but at the same time, there's this new school freshness to it that I don't see very much these days. We're not as much as I'd like. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. Um, And then along those lines, you know, you've created these great booklets. And then, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about is this, uh, these cards that you produce, like you got this way of communicating uh, uh, permaculture principles uh, through these permaculture design cards that are, you know, they, they, they play with the whole, you know, zone of the card, whether it's a tarot card or Magic the Gathering card or whatever, the whole like language of the card as a sort of vehicle for, again, a, a kind of new school, old school way of communicating information. So I just love to hear how like the idea of a card deck works for you because that I think that's a, one way to get to understand a little more about how you approach the whole work of teaching and transmitting information and transmitting not just information but the larger patterns that that make information sing beautiful well this is actually the culmination I'm 16 years deep into my graduate work I'm just completing my doctorate in permaculture education and one of the projects uh which like everything else I do is a free open source download online at printable is a teacher's manual, which I've been working on with uh, one of my co-teachers, Kim Chi, and also with pretty much the entire pantheon uh, of my different permaculture teachers. And the idea in permaculture is that the highest uh, iteration of any profession is top tips, best practices, and maybe do's and don'ts. (laughs) So this teacher's manual is really that, and it's for people, for teachers in any discipline. And of course, we're all teachers, uh, even in our personal relationships. So one of the concepts in this sort of new school, experiential, transformative education a style that permaculture has been generated has to do with gamifying curriculum. So what I've been trying to do with my in my different collaborations is take what previously was a lecture and turn it into an interactive discussion. And one of the design methods of permaculture I, I learned from Larry, Larry Santoyo is designed by chunking. It's like take things down into bite-sized chunks. So instead of me sitting at the blackboard and giving a lecture on you know the way to design effective water systems we break it down into a series of small concepts. And then with a group, we can be out in the middle of a farm surrounded by sheep and goats, you know, all with these individual cards bring and each student can read one of the concepts. And then we can have a discussion of like, how can we see this concept at work in the system that we're in? How could we apply it better? And of course, how could we apply it to our own life or or livelihood or landscape uh, in some way? So, This card deck is 230 of the principles of permaculture, and these are kind of broken into five categories. There's attitudes, which are like attitudinal principles. There's strategies or strategic principles. There's design principles, which are more ecological. 
and then there's ethics or ethical principles. And then I added design methods uh, because permaculture is a lot about design process and de design methodology and how we approach these kind of things. And then amazingly with kimchi through a lot of her hard work, we actually took this uh, core notes of the permaculture design course, which I have online uh, and turned it into a thousand card deck. This isn't actually available online, this thousand card deck. So really there's 1200 cards, which the entire permaculture design curriculum has been broken down into these little chunks. And then it can be gamified into all sorts of interactive curriculum uh, can be shared in small amounts or in large amounts. And there's all this possibility um, for doing sort of breakout groups and games where cards are moved around or arranged in different ways. And the idea is that instead of a passive student, the participant becomes really an active part of the journey where they're, you know, the the line between teacher and student is totally blurred and everyone's on the spot, hopefully in a, in a comfortable, inspiring way at all times to be directly involved in the process of learning by applying. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about gamification, which is an interesting phrase, you hear it, you've heard it a lot. We've heard about it for, for a while. And in some ways we've seen interesting things come out of it. In other ways, I think it's been kind of another disappointing meme, at least, at least on the larger kind of like corporate uh, level that that you know started to use the the term um, and it but it makes me think back to one of the things that struck me back in the in the visionary culture days um, when I we saw the way that that you and some of your crew were kind of consciously crafting possibilities that had a game like dimension that in this subcultural space we weren't just having fun or blowing our minds or even on a spiritual search, we were also collectively playing a kind of game. And what I realized then, and I still think is really true, and it's a subtle point, is that gamification doesn't just allow people to become interactive players more easily. It also reminds you if you're paying attention, that you are part of a design system that can be changed. And so it's different than saying, this is the way it is, like a religion is like, this is the way it is to be. This is, uh, this is what we do here. Are you going to join our, our, our group or not? If you're joining the group, then we think this way, then the holidays are these holidays, then the rituals are these rituals. And it is a game for the outsider. They look at that and they go, oh, Alex, that's a kind of weird little cult game. But from the inside, it's like truth. But if you're like, no, 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 we're playing a game and we're seeing what the results are, you're always also aware that you're part of a, design, a human design, cultural design, symbolic design, practice design that can be changed and operated for the purposes of continuing to play the game. Um, so I think it's, you know, really kind of significant in terms of that that aspect of the game playing that is deeper than just it gets people involved it's more fun it's a more fun way to teach than just sit standing in front of a, a you know a, a blackboard with a piece of chalk um can you tell me a little bit more about how you think about games or even think about the way that cards you know and we're going to get to your to the galactic uh visionary card deck the oracle deck in in a moment but just the way that, that gamification can deepen uh, and make 
culture more intelligent? Interesting. Yeah, cardomancy, you know, the art of working with cards is really ancient. And there's something, it's like a deconstructed book. There's something about uh, breaking things down into small mobile concepts that can interact with each other in a way that they can't in the linear context of a book. Because when you draw cards, it's like you could have tens of thousands of combinations of different cards interacting. Uh, one of the core principles of permaculture is guilds. It's actually one of the master patterns for reality. You know, we think of ourselves as individuals, but of course, you know, we're all sorts of organs and working together, you know, to make us and those organs are tons of different cells working together. And those cells even are combinations of all these different things at the atomic level. And so even though we think of ourselves as individuals, we're actually a guild of different things working together. And uh, when you have the cards, you can see how different concepts do the same thing. They kind of uh, work together to fulfill functions that neither of them could fulfill on their own. So part of the great myth that's also being deconstructed with permaculture and I think is exemplified metaphorically through the use of cards is this idea that one plus one equals two. And, uh, you know, those of us that did a little bit of math, I think I dropped out in math 11, but uh, realized that there's no place on our, in our reality, really, that one plus one ever equals two, except in the imaginary world of platonic mathematics. In the real world, one plus one might equal 72 or 263 or, you know, 879. Because like when you and I get together, Eric, we're not just the combination of me and the combination of you. It's like all this stuff's coming out that's emergent that's coming out of our uh, interaction that wouldn't have come out from either of us individually. So I think the use of cards has emergent properties. And this kind of plays back to the visionary culture piece, where by breaking things down into small concepts and then allowing them to recombine in innovative and creative ways, uh, all of this, these meta levels come out of that. Yeah. When really what that makes me think of, you know, is just to jump registers is just the way that, you know, the way you can approach something like your personal uh, uh, um, altar, you know, like the way that like you're, if you're changing your alt, you got an altar in your house, you got this object, this thing from this other point, this God form, this card from a tarot deck, this kind of incense, and then ah, I'm going to mix it up, see what happens if I swap this out with this thing. And and you realize that that part of what spirituality is for a lot of people, to use kind of a crappy word, but we don't really have a better one. Part of what that seeking is, is kind of playing with the different dimensions of the guild, which is why something like the tarot has taken, taken off so much in the last hundred years and all these different kinds of decks, all these different ways of playing with that language because it's such a, a great mechanism, which is not even quite the right word, but a great format, a great, a great art form for playing with this emergent multiplicity. Uh, which is, you know, such a key uh, part of things. And so, I mean, it, it makes sense that cardomancy, you know, is part of your, uh, of your way, uh, which brings us to the Galactic Trading Cards, which is part of the reason we're here. It's, it's a project you've been doing for a very long time. Um, so why don't you just talk about how the, how the, project, uh, how the project began and, and why you decided to kind of, you know, finalize it or at least bring it to a, a completed deck form uh, at this point, uh, even as you're doing all your your uh, permaculture work? 
Thanks, Eric. Yeah, and I, there was a vision in the year 2000 that I had about um, having relationships with visionary artists as kind of an art culture community building initiative. And the idea was to, to bring all these artists together um, and create a media vehicle for sharing uh, art of vision, for sharing art that was about the inner and the deeply outer, you know, was about people having these like, flash or experience where they saw something that they'd never seen before that was utterly novel and inspired awe and inspiration and really fueled their own creative process of making more art, music, dancing, whatever forms of uh, creativity that they expressed. And this is very much in alignment with what we're doing here at, at Cosm Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. We are a church of creativity. And one of the basis for the church is really that people's own experience of being creative uh, allows them to have a direct contact with divinity in a really intimate and personal way that's outside of anything dogmatic, prescribed, or any kind of system. And this project, I thought, would be completely non-commercial, that it would be too complicated to make it a business. So I don't. I entirely volunteer, just like I do for the Permaculture Design Deck. I entirely volunteer, and then I'm able to uh, get art licensing from the artists without having to... Uh, make any business arrangement with them. And so it's also about the art culture community building piece is about connecting different cultures and traditions together and showing that although we're all unique and different and each culture and each country and each artist really represents a uniquely creative uh, reflection of the visionary impulse or, or spiritual reality or whatever you want to call it, but then there's all these themes where it's like, oh, check it out, that visionary artist from Peru and the one from northern Russia and the one from Japan and the run, one from the U.S. are all totally showing this you know, multi-winged angel entity. And so it, it's about also showing that we're all connected and that there's some kind of similitude that, that we're all kind of tapping into and that it's not just that our imagination is something that we're generating it's that the imagination in a very kind of terence mckenna like way is that you know maybe we're tapping into this other dimension of imagination which has its own reality and has its own collectiveness yeah well said i mean we're we're inside in some ways we're inside the imagination and that's one of the interesting things about visionary culture and visionary art i mean specifically visionary art as it's sort of developed over the last couple of decades, you know, we can look in the past and say, okay, that's visionary art, or that's surrealism, which is kind of visionary art, or that's William Blake, and we can create our, create our ancestors. But as a self-conscious movement, you know, it's a couple of decades old. Uh, and what's been really interesting is to see the way that it's operated like a parallel art world, but also like something else. And... Like, you know, one of the things, the criticisms that people have, particularly now, like if you go to a festival now and you go to the visionary art thing, you're like, a lot of you've seen before now. It's like, oh, you know, okay, I've seen, I remember that. I remember when the guy, when I remember when they did that in 2001 or whatever, at least for me, I'm a little jaded. Um, but that, I think that partly misses the point, which is that while on the one hand, the visionary art world is a place for exceptional talents and exceptional visionaries to rage and level up and get attention and make a career and, you know, inspire other people, inspire people's inner lives. 
that it's also, and this is what differentiates it from conventional art world, it's also a place for the collective to kind of weave and resonate with these sort of archetypal and sort of invent archetypes that then kind of get distributed around the globe because neo-tribal culture, psychedelic culture, is, it's, it's like heavy metal, is a global culture. I mean, a really global culture. They're everywhere, you know? And, and so that's the side of it that becomes something other than just our Western idea of art as something that geniuses make. And if you're not a genius, you're just kind of like, okay, and it's kind of lame. It's simultaneously a place for truly excellent artists to shine outside of the art system and occasionally overlapping the art system but also for, for the collective to use and express and move through the imagination. And so the, 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 the card deck, to me, part of what's brilliant about it is that it, it, it shows you that. It shows you the collective dimension that's simultaneously diverse. You know, some of the images I'm way into, some of them aren't my taste. But the overall vibe, the world that we're in when we're in the, the domain of the, of the galactic uh, deck is it's a collective space of a kind of imagination that we're both inventing and that's inventing us. I love that. That's totally brilliant. So I'm kind of dipping my toe into this uh, crowdfunding paradigm because I'm just living as an art monk, volunteering full time at Cosm's Chapel of Sacred Mirrors right now, and I'm I'm doing this non-commercial project and I'm exploring like, hey. Could I just sound the call to my creative community and would people uh, just pre-purchase cards in order to allow me to get the uh, printing and design costs? Because that's really manifesting the miraculous. I mean, that's the ultimate postmodern empowerment for young artists and creatives is to be like, I don't have any money, resources, but, but and I'm not even asking for donations, but is it possible now through the miracle of the internet and, and podcasts like this to actually... Uh, do creative projects that are non-commercial and have them just miraculously appear uh, out of nowhere by people uh, pre-purchasing. It's, it's, I mean, musicians are using it, videographers are using it. It's really an amazing uh, addition to empower the sort of post-festival culture or visionary culture that we're talking about by allowing people to have visions and then turn them into realities by sort of tapping the network. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention that you know, in addition to just being like trading cards where you see an image from an artist and you get information about them, where they come from, and, and you get a cool image, you've also added all these layers, you know, and I've seen there's like been multiple iterations of the deck over the years. And now there's this kind of whole level of like layered intelligence that that is, you know, is like an, a tarot deck, is like an oracle deck where there are different, you know, uh, sort of categories of different cards. There's different symbols. There's different colors. There's a there's a richness and intelligence to the deck as a as a whole uh, that really invites people to use it as well as just more than just to collect it or just to look at the pictures. There is that same kind of pragmatism, that kind of design pragmatism that we were talking about earlier with permaculture. Here it's sort of like a visionary pragmatism, like, hey, you can actually navigate this world partly through this, this, this deck, through this sense of, of images that have their own you know, little figures, buttons, uh, you know, pull-down menus, the whole kind of language of like, information surfing is kind of layered into this archetypal world, which is, a, again, like a really fresh 
uh, shift, I think, in thinking about the meaning of these um, visionary images. Well, yeah, it's really similar to permaculture design. I mean, it's his own mysterium tremendum. It is a syncretic oracle, which is like part I Ching, part tarot, part Mayan calendar, part sort of star oracle on its own. But the same idea that, you know, I think is really a, indicative of all good oracles is that they create a type of confusion where you ask a question, you say, I'm designing a relationship, I'm starting a new business, I'm designing a garden, what should I do? And then the answer you get, there is a, con a confrontation with a certain type of confusion of like, well, how does this apply to my question? How does this apply to gardening? And then through this creative process of working through that, you start thinking about your question in a new way. It gives you creative fodder for your decision-making and design process and ultimately puts you in a better decision to make, uh, you know, to move forward yourself. It doesn't tell you what to do. It just gives you more creative fodder to make the decision yourself. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's very, very, very well put. Um, and, uh, you know, our best of luck with it. What do we got, like 15 days left or something, you know? There's... Yeah, that's right. Final two weeks, yeah. Okay, and I'll, and, uh, I'll put the link on the on the podcast page and just to let people know it's on kickstarter galactic trading card visionary art oracle uh and uh you know best of luck with it delvin and and good luck with all your uh, visionary permaculture courses and finishing up your doctorate and all that it's been great to talk to you again thanks eric it's been awesome talking to you and i hope we get to feature you again in uh, cosm journal of visionary culture in an upcoming edition Absolutely. Yeah, that's another thing. Uh, you, you've been on your busy, busy beaver. All right, folks. Uh, until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>